Hello, and welcome to Rich Text. I'm Claire. And I'm Emma. And this isn't just any old episode. Today, we are going to be talking with our brilliant former colleague, Ziba Blay, about her new book, Carefree Black Girls, a celebration of Black women in pop culture. We are so excited that everyone is going to finally get to be able to read this book, which we absolutely loved. And Ziba, we're so excited to chat with you about it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm so freaking happy to like be talking to you guys right now. I miss you so much. We so miss you great. so miss you much. Too. So good to see your face. You know, we're just glad that, you know, we just want you to remember us when you become <laughs> big and famous and really important. So just yeah. think of the little people down here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we all knew this day would come when you would write a really cool book, but we thought maybe we would all still work together and maybe be able to go to a dive bar and celebrate. And things are a little bit different, but the amazing book is here. It's and here. That's that's great. That's something. So yeah, this this book is so rich. It's a beautiful book of essays, and I'm really excited. There's like a lot, a lot of different threads to get into here. So let's just kick this off. First, just why write this book and why now? I asked myself that question so many times <laughs> during the writing of the book when I was like spiraling and I was like, what, like, what am I doing? Who do I think I am? But I mean, that, that sense of um, uh, imposter syndrome or whatever you want to call it, I think is kind of part of why I wanted to write this book. I've always felt as a culture writer that my experience, my identity was something that was seen as, at least early in my career, seen as like sort of um, besides the point, something that I shouldn't center in my writing. And I just think that the contributions that Black women make to not only like pop culture, but like also pop culture discourse are, are like so like erased and it was important for me to like write a book that centered not only black women in pop culture but like my experience of consuming you know those movies tv shows books whatever throughout my life because I yeah I just think that it's uh it's important to carve out that space when the space isn't being carved for you that was a weird way to say that but yeah yeah that that completely makes sense I mean you write a little bit in the book about how underrepresented black women are in film criticism it's such a male space it's such a white space and then even when you you are in that space often the credentials are questioned the objectivity is questioned, and it's not a friendly place to be working. And so in this book, you get to kind of like spread out a little bit and really dig into all these topics. And one of the things that we wanted to talk about is actually a cultural product that you created, uh, or were a big part of popularizing, which is in the title, uh, you were one of the first people to popularize or coin the term carefree black girls. And we were wondering, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to that hashtag and the evolution of it out in the world? Yeah, I, so this was like 2013, so I was definitely deep in my Tumblr years. And uh, a write, another writer, Collier Meyerson, had created um, a parody account called Carefree White Girls. So it was like pictures of like Taylor Swift like you know like on like a, a tree swing and like just like white girls living their best fucking lives and it was sort of like you know it was it was a way to sort of satirize and poke fun at this sort of you know white girl obliviousness that a lot of women of color like are not it's just a different experience obviously so that was kind of on my mind and 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 then yeah and then I one day I tweeted a selfie of myself and and I used the, the hashtag carefree black girls I was like oh okay well if 
Taylor Swift can be out here frolicking. Like, maybe I can too, even though I'm like super depressed. But maybe I can um, reclaim some of that joy for myself. And so that's kind of where it came from. And it's like, I've never felt like I am the person. Like, I think <laughs> Carefree Black Girl is so cool because it kind of like took on a life of its own. And that was part of why I wanted to write the book as well was like, you know, like however many years later, um, all the iterations, all of the reactions, all of the definitions of what a carefree black girl is are so interesting to me because it reflects the complexity of being a black woman. And, and yeah, I just found that to be like really like, yeah, chewy stuff, <laughs> good stuff to chew on. Yeah, and you do obviously in the book write a little bit about kind of the evolution of the hashtag outside of you. And we were wondering, like, can you talk a little bit more about the experience of having one of your ideas discussed and debated by other cultural commentators? And like, how did that complicated discourse shape your own relationship? to the initial product um i found it fascinating because i i when i used the hashtag i wasn't i wasn't using it in a prescriptive way i, I wasn't using it in a way where like i was dictating what anyone should think that it is so it, the criticisms of it were really interesting to me like i didn't find it like because i didn't feel like this intense ownership over it because i thought of it more as a place a, a space in the digital realm where black girls could do whatever they wanted yeah i was really interested in like you know there were pieces written about how like i can't claim the carefree black girl moniker tag because i'm not carefree and like black women are, are often not allowed to be carefree so there were those reactions and there, there were people like well you know when you look at the hashtag why are you only saying um one type of black girl why are you only seeing like a, a light-skinned three c haired uh girl in like a crochet top and like a you know <laughs> a flower crown <laughs> um and those were all like very valid criticisms and i think that what it ultimately did and what i think any of these sort of like i just think ultimately like we should all just be thinking more and more about what you define like how we define black women and that's what i try to do in the book is like i i am taking these different archetypes you know not just the carefree black girl but also like the strong black woman and you know the the mammy figure and all these different types of figures and, and i'm i'm trying to like understand what they say about how everyone feels about black women like black women themselves and everyone else it was it was interesting and it was it was very helpful in getting me to a place where i could see that those ideas more yeah that makes a lot of sense i love the way that you write about how the discourse kind of unfolded and the way that like an idea can sometimes just be put out there to say almost like, why can't this be? Why can't this be possible? And then that can spark so much unpacking of, of all the ways in which it's made impossible or all the ways that it could become possible um, or that it's even possible in certain ways already. And I think you do such an incredible job of like tracing how all those threads um, sort of unfurled. Um we wanted to talk a little bit about the way that you combine, as you were saying before, like cultural analysis and memoir and writing about your personal experiences through the lens of culture, writing about culture through the lens of your personal experiences. And as a result, like a lot of it is so personal and so vulnerable. What was the process for you like of going through your own experiences and feelings for this and trying to put them on the page it was probably like the hardest thing i've ever had to do because how i initially conceived of, of the book and how the book has like actually ended up very two very different projects and it, the the difference is the fact that like while i was writing the book i was going through like the worst depressive episode ever <laughs> So I was having to really, really contend with what my definition of, of freedom and joy was. And, you, you know, you can't, you can't write a book called Carefree Black Girls 
while you're depressed and not have to really do a lot of reflecting and a lot of unpacking. So it's like with each chapter, I can't write about Lizzo without writing about my own internalized fat phobia because so much of my reaction to her is because of my reaction to myself. And so each each chapter was like a challenge to me. The, the key to good writing is honesty and it's a willingness to meet yourself on the page and it's a willingness to let go of your ego. And so this whole process has really been a process of letting go of whatever conceptions I had about myself, of success, of whatever, because the book I conceived of was not going to be, like, I was not going to include anything about me because, right, I was, you know, I came up in an industry where objectivity, you're not supposed to talk about your, your experiences, you're not supposed to insert yourself into this dialogue. Um, and I, yeah, I, I found myself really, um, revealing things about myself on the page, but also like in real time revealing these things to myself as well. Things that I had never really talked about or thought about in a real way. So it was scary, definitely. But I think ultimately, you know, I say in the introduction that the book is an offering. And for me, it was like as corny as it is, I, it's true. Like I, if I can normalize talking about it, because, you know, black women are not, we're not allowed to talk about these things. We're not allowed to talk about anxiety and depression and all these or not that we're not allowed but there's a narrative right right and so if i can push against that narrative and model for someone vulnerability then maybe like maybe that's something i mean there is such a generosity to your writing like it, it does read to me as as an offering as a gift and as like a really really as I said, like beautiful and generous one. And that's so interesting to me that you didn't initially intend the book to be as personal as it is because it fits perfectly. Like when I read it, the personal experience, it doesn't feel self-indulgent. It feels essential. It's an interesting thing that I think a lot of writers, especially in the culture space, especially people who are a member of any sort of identity group outside of like white cis straight dude have to contend with because we are both pushed to mine our own experiences for content and also kind of like derided for doing that. Yeah, because, you know, the, the the subtitle of the book is A Celebration of Black Women in Pop Culture, which I do believe that it is a celebration of Black women in pop culture, but I also wonder if someone might see that and think they're going to get this really like, ah, like woo. <laughs> it's like no like it's like bleak from beginning to end I'm talking about like police brutality I'm talking about like freaking like depression like you know it's 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 bleak you know and that was really that felt really exposing and scary because I'm like oh I don't want people to think that I'm like I'm trying to use my my pain or yeah try, trying to use my pain as some sort of grift or stick you know this is not a stick to me this is my ev like everyday life like this is what it is you know to to be a black person in um, a white supremacist system and like trying to survive and trying to find your joy while also just feeling constantly extracted from and yeah it was really scary because I didn't want people to think that I was doing the whole because there was a period right and I, we definitely went through it in, in our in our other job where <laughs> you know there was a time when it's like okay like write you know the race beat right like write about you know how terrible it is to be black and but like write in a way that's like specifically for like uh for a white gaze um mm -hmm. and yeah like I didn't want it to be that it was very important to me that everything that I, I was talking about I was talking directly I mean I I dedicated the, the book to little z my younger self but in a lot of ways it, it's a dedication to all the the child self of all black women because i just feel like that little girl is so precious and like deserves to be affirmed and seen and so it was really important for me to just let go of my ego and my fear about what people will think and be like hey like i see you you know yeah it, it is really having been through the way that you're asked to commodify your experiences in that way and present them in that way. I mean, 
the way that it used to be framed in the digital media space was so distasteful. I, I this is a, a different a different thing. Um but just indicative, I think, of the way that it often went down. I remember having a meeting about doing a feminism sprint on the site. And yep. it was like, just oh, write yeah. a bunch of feminism content about culture <laughs> and fe- and women. And we were like, what do you mean? Like, this is just <laughs> not really yeah. how it should work. It's, it's <laughs> gross. Um, but that is kind of how it was seen. It was like, let's just blast a bunch of content about like race out there that's going to get a bunch of eyeballs. And um, and so to come through that and find another way into connecting with a different audience more like authentically with that is it must have been really hard. Um, but I think you do such an amazing job. And it's one of my favorite kinds of writing, actually, to combine like the personal Same. and cultural criticism. I think it it's hard for me, like, it's hard to write about culture in a way without being personal, because like what you bring to the table as a viewer and as a reader is, is so crucial oh, to like the dynamic. Right. It's inherently uh, subjective. Yes. Like a white cis male, he will watch what's it, Fight Club and he will bring his experiences as a white cis male into his reading in the film, which is fine. Here's the thing, which is great, which is fine. I'm interested in that. But then you can't tell me that I can't have a reading of it that um, centers my own experiences. Like, that is what art is. That's what makes art so freaking cool. And, yeah, like, I just feel like um, that was something that it took me a while to, like, feel confident in um claiming for myself as a writer and i'm happy that i have yeah i'm i'm happy that you have come to that too because the rest of us all benefit and it is so interesting because it really just speaks to the way that we are like so ingrained with this idea of that you know faceless white male critic (laughs) as like the objectivity meter and that everyone else's identity sort of falls in within a spectrum of outside of that and like that is that's the only way you can bring identity in being that person you can't you're not bringing identity into your review and obviously we we know we know now that that's that's bullshit um something else i wanted to talk about is in in your essay man this shit is draining you dedicate a space a a small space but a space to a pretty powerful fuck you to racist trolls part of the essay works as both catharsis and a, a metaphor for the way that you've had to kind of contain your anger to a small space as a black woman throughout your life i'm wondering how you navigate expressing that anger publicly and in your writing while also anticipating contending with the pushback that you kind of know you're going to inevitably receive for doing so yeah i mean it took me a while to and and you know I, that that path like that little paragraph is itself indulgent but that's kind of the point um because it's it's not something i would ever do partly because i you know like that's the rub of being a black woman it's like your anger can be weaponized against you and in the online space like it's it's really scary because there are some like weird ass hateful ass people in the world and wow like they they are so bereft you know and they they're so deluded in whatever sort of narrative they've created of the world where you know it's us and them them and us that to engage with that in real time for me as like my career like continuing that as I was working at Post and all these things like I, it became very clear to me that like that just wasn't going to be an option like I don't have it in me like I'm already probably having a bad day like I'm not gonna make it worse by trying to defend my humanity with people who clearly don't care you know but it's a shame that standing up for your, yourself or speaking up for yourself is such a risky choice and it comes with so much as you're saying like you ha- you anticipate you already know that something is coming and that can be really exhausting i have a friend my friend ashley reese she um she's an amazing writer at jezebel and she is spicy online like she wants to go like 
pound for pound. Anyone who comes <laughs> at her, she's going to go on for like two hours back and forth. And I find it so like, sometimes I'm like, oh my God, Ashley, don't, <laughs> don't engage with the trolls. Like don't, but I, it's also actually so refreshing and um, exhilarating to watch her like take no shit because ultimately that is what that sort of abuse the the goal of that sort of abuse is to make you diminish yourself and make yourself small and disappear um and yeah so that's why I ran the book well now I have a, a book so <laughs> yeah that's what I loved about it I could like hear you saying it and sort of like laughing to yourself and I was like yes this is really satisfying to read yeah it's the 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 idea of the angry black woman is one of the tropes that you really dig into in this book and I love the way that you that you unpack all of the tropes, the the angry black woman, the the idea of being like the strong black woman or the mammy, as you said earlier, and all the different like purposes they serve in kind of in kind of uh, cornering you almost into like diminishing p- part of yourself that is vital and human. That like the angry black woman reminds you that your anger invites greater anger and punishment and condemnation and the trope of being like really strong reminds you that your role is to power through by whatever means necessary and each of those things is kind of it just like requires you to do the the work yourself of like diminishing the human parts of yourself that make up a full person Um, But also like the way that this plays out in pop culture is just pop culture is full of these tropes and sometimes they're, they're executed almost in this like optimistic way like let's make movies with a bunch of like strong black women and that will be a really positive like positive representation. it reminded me when you were writing about it a little bit of like the mania for like girl bosses like let's just make some really positive depictions of this poorly represented group and that will like fix racism in in movies or whatever (laughs) but like i was particularly interested in the idea of the strong black lead that you wrote about and how like what is projected as being this like positive thing like oh you're so strong look at you is actually can be like harmful in its own way. And I would love for yeah. you to talk a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? It's like the angry black woman trope. There are black women that are angry and rightfully so. There are black women who are strong. Um, it, the problem is when that becomes the beginning and end of a character, you know, when, when you see the hard but not the soft or when, you know what I mean? And I think it's the strong, like, even if, like, the strong black woman trope, it's, like, for me, like, just, like, from, a, from a, an aesthetic point of view, an artistic point of view, it is, it's so much more interesting to see someone who's a hard-ass, like, for instance, like, Annalise, uh, what's her name? Keating. Um, from, yes, Keating, from How to Get, Get Away with Murder. That, first of all, that show was a lot. I definitely could not, like... <laughs> keep up with it doing the most okay shonda shows always like start off you're like yes and then like two seasons in you're like why has everyone murdered someone i'm very overwhelmed (laughs) like yeah it was a lot but one thing you know like in a lot of ways you know annalee like fits that trope of like a hard ass take no shit like she's just gonna like you know like her her arms cut off and she's just gonna keep you know going like all that kind of stuff but because Viola Davis is such an amazing actress, there are these moments of such vulnerability. I'm thinking of, I believe in the first season, there's a scene where she is, um, like, like has had a long day, some crazy shit has happened, and she's in front of her mirror, and she she's removing her makeup, and she takes off her wig. And, you know, there were some people who didn't like that because they were like, oh, why, you know, no that's real like that is that moment of vulnerability and softness made the the strength of her character that much more dynamic and I think that's what that's what we talk about when we talk about representation it's just like can we please have nuance like that's all 
like I'm not because here's the thing too and now I'm kind of going off on a tangent but stay with me um you know the show The White Lotus what a wonderful genius piece of work and the reason why one of the reasons why I loved it so much was because oh my goodness finally for once a white man a white cis man is sitting here grappling in his art with all of these quote-unquote identity issues i i'm actually interested to know what white people think about this stuff i just don't need it to be um done in a way that is um dishonest like i was saying like art that is not honest is like not good and so i think that in all representation black white women whatever like there needs to be an intentionality there is such opportunity to delve into something and you, you instead of delving into it you just don't touch it you give me a black character but you don't want to acknowledge the fact that they're black what is that actually achieving in terms of this this lofty goal of representation you know i think that's yeah, like I think that that is the thing that activates me the most when, when I'm watching something new. So what I mean, what you're essentially arguing for is f- to be given characters that have the full range of humanity rather than Period. being paper dolls. You know, I and I think that this is something that we're seeing in like the entertainment industry grapple with as a whole. Like obviously Claire and I have a podcast about the bachelor franchise and something that's been interesting in the reality tv space it's like obviously the bachelor is a really really white cultural product and there's been all of these calls for it to be better and their initial solution to these complaints was to essentially just like drop people of color into this white space and be like we did it we fixed it and as we've seen in the last couple of years, there's like massive, massive limitations to doing that and it can actually do more harm. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that that sort of thing can happen in scripted and, and fictional products as well. Completely. I think that like, yeah, that's, that's the tension you find with inclusion where it's like I'm being included in a space that was never made for me. And so, like, yeah, like, you just plop me here and then you don't consider um, the psychic or the mental toll it it takes to be the only one in, you know, in, in, in a group. And, yeah, like, I, I, and that's why I go back to intentionality. It's like, okay, include me, but, like, also, like, create avenues for me to succeed. Because what then happens, you you set the person up to fail. You set everyone up to fail when you don't sort of acknowledge and like take a lot of time and care into creating those those new tables because the thing that's what i feel i feel like the seat at the table is no longer looking cute like the seat at the table is not is not because the table is disgusting (laughs) right the table is like the table from like pan's labyrinth like just like rotting food like i don't want to sit there like Like, oh thanks for inviting me (laughs) you know like i want to sit at a table that i've created and my table can be you know across the way from your table and we're both out here thriving but i need to be given the resources and the access and the ability to tell the stories that are going to create more of this cultural shift that that we all need and want yeah yeah it's it's so true like you've been brought to the table but you're there to be partaking in something that is demoralizing and miserable and often to be kind of like utilized in ways that you don't want your work to be directed and it's it wasn't a a system that was set up to to serve anyone um except the people who made it and um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about like the women that you write about in the book um, who are partaking in these systems um, to mixed result for themselves. Um, you write about you know so many you know Cardi B, Lizzo, Serena Williams, Gary Spice, Lisa Bonet, Countess Bond, so many black women in in our culture, and one theme that 
often seem to emerge for me is that there has been this lack of representation that you're kind of exploring the contours of throughout the book. But also there has been something that isn't a lack, like there is something there. There is a canon of film and TV and music by and for Black women. And I was interested by how those two things kind of are often played against each other. And like, how did you think about balancing those two parts of the exploration that like there's been a lack of representation but also that it's not not there like there there is a canon there to be explored and appreciated there is definitely like a very crunk party happening across the way so i hope (laughs) that the music is not disturbing anything um but to answer your question i think that you know, the other day I, I wrote a piece about the new um, Netflix movie, The Harder The Harder They Fall, uh, which is, it's a Western. It has an all-black cast. It looks really dope. But there was some controversy because one of the uh, stars, Zazie Beetz, is playing a, a character based on a real-life historical figure named Stagecoach Mary, who was a darker-skinned, larger black woman. And so people were talking about, like, this is colorist like why does Hollywood continue to you know favor and privilege lighter skinned actresses over darker ones and so I, I wrote the piece and then so, like someone tweeted at me like when when is it ever going to be enough right <laughs> or something to that effect and the gag like the real answer to that question is that it's never going to be enough right like that is that is the reality is like representation is never going to be enough it's an ideal it's this utopic ideal that we 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 are never going to be able to like actually reach like everyone in the world is rep- but we have to keep striving for it mm-hmm. and so yes it's great that there is an all black cast but that like i'm allowed to still have opinions about that cast right like you know, I think people take for granted this idea that um, one, like representation is, is this thing, and, and I fall into the trap to myself where people say like, oh, I, I see myself <clears throat> when I saw myself on screen. Um, and I think like we have to really unpack what it means to see yourself because sometimes seeing yourself, you might be seeing, you know, I, a, a black woman, might be seeing uh, Sutton, on the bold type and really identify with her and her story and feel in some way represented by her right and i think that that's the beauty of art is that it can create that connection that empathy that oh wow like we are human beings going through this really weird experience of being alive and the need for more representation of marginalized groups, I think for me, um, you know, it's not that it's like some sort of empathy machine that's going to make people suddenly see the humanity of black people. But I do think that it, it creates those, those questions and those like, Oh crap, like Issa on insecure, like, I'm a white girl from Wisconsin, but she's messy and I'm messy too, you know, like these kinds of connections. And so for me, it's like, yes, on one hand, there is an amazing archive of black women in pop culture going all the way back to the 1900s, you know, Oscar Michelle films. And like there's this this long legacy and and i think it's important when we talk about representation to not forget that those people existed that like you know when i I write about when i first uh discovered josephine baker and just being so blown away that someone like her existed in the time that like what a black queer uh like like nude dancer who like was like out like like you know like who like slept with Frida Kahlo and was like partying with Hemingway and like it's it's so freaking cool and it's like we cannot forget the legacies of those people because you can draw a straight line from Josephine Baker to Rihanna right 
in so many ways, like the it girl, you know? So there's an importance in remembering that. But then there's an importance in understanding why I, at 20-something, hadn't known her story, right? Like, there's that duality. And so in writing the book, it was like I wanted to, I didn't want to just be like, there's no representation, there's no, I wanted to give flowers and acknowledge the Black women who have personally inspired me and who have given so much to the culture. And then I wanted to be like, okay, like they have done so much. Why are they not getting their flowers? When I start out as a, a critic, as a film critic, why are my white male colleagues asking me how many, you know, Truffaut films I've seen, <laughs> but they've never seen, you know, Just Another Girl on the IRT, or they've never seen Dars of the Dust. Like, wh- where is the... um? There, there's like there's a disparity there and I, and that is what really interests me when we talk about what this thing representation even is yeah mm-hmm. there's something about like the way that this kind of intentional almost ignorance and erasure is part of like the propaganda of white supremacy that's like oh this whole new thing where there are like queer people and black people black queer people like that's new like you're asking us to like have this thing now that's a whole new thing that we grew up without it and we shouldn't be asked to deal with it now in our movies and to know to know the full history of people like josephine baker and and all of the black women throughout pop culture in in america is to know that that's not true and to know that like that has always been been present and and also like there's the desire to like suck up all the entertainment and the fun and like oh this is a fun thing to watch but that's not going to translate into um into remembering that person into honoring them and like you the, the it's the it's the wanting the moment of entertainment without without the process of being like you know, the way that we are with like Tom Hanks, you know, like, oh my God, let's talk about how he's like the best man in America and he's everyone's granddad <laughs> and we'll never forget Tom Hanks, you know. Um at that process and is, is not Chet Hanks. Well, oh my God. <laughs> so no one wants really to talk Chet about Hanks? how he gave us Chet Hanks. <laughs> oh my God. Chet Hayes, I think. Oh, um, please refer to him oh, by right, his right. artistic <laughs> name. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it it is interesting like just thinking about that sort of willful ignorance it then yeah it creates this hierarchy of authority while also putting you a black woman critic in the position of actually having a much wider base of knowledge than a lot of your white male peers we live in a hellscape and nothing <laughs> makes sense <laughs> oh oh yes now that you mention it i do remember that so correct it's it's giving topsy-turvy so yeah um (laughs) and there comes a point as a writer where you have to like you have to like the light comes on and you're like oh all of this is bullshit and I can write whatever I want and I can feel however I want because that's another thing like writing a book like this there's this fear of like you know, people are going to think that, like, people are not going to agree with this, or people could, or whatever, and the, the point is that I am not trying to sit here like I know it, I know everything. I think acting like you know everything is the, the most dishonest way, like, or wanting to know everything. I think the whole point of being alive is to constantly be learning and be, being curious and, like, changing your mind and, like, having new opinions. A lot of the, the writing that I did when I was 25 does not reflect how I feel now at 32. And that's okay. That's called being a human being and, and shifting and growing. Um, and so, and I think that uh, sometimes there's there's no spaciousness made for that kind of like messiness of like, because a lot of the book is me just like figuring things out as I'm writing them, you know, it's, 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 I'm kind of like rambling a little bit in the book, but, but that's kind of like, it, it, there was an intention to that because it's like, these are 
things I have been thinking about since I was 10 years old. I have loved Melanie B since I was 10 years old. And every, as I get older, what she means to me, the new things are revealed and unfurled, right? Because my mind is expanding and growing. I'm older. I have more experience. That is so much more interesting than like having the right take, you know? Like, who cares? <laughs> I loved, I loved when you wrote about Mel B. And also just, I love that it was uh, a universal experience of our generation's girlhood to play at being the Spice Girls in elementary school. I actually never like... did that. So I feel <gasps> unwelcome oh, really? here. I feel, wow. I feel excluded. Oh, wow. Well, uh, it's never too late. Never too late. <laughs> yeah, look. Um, How did I miss the we Spice can get Girls? A girl I legitimately together. We can create a dance routine. Look, Halloween is coming up too, so that's so high. That, you know, I don't even know which um, one to be. Um, so I've got a lot of research like, to I do. I feel like baby or ginger. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. you could do like the Jerry Hollywell like highlighted situation Claire's like yeah that's not happening. you know what um I'm just gonna tell people that I'm ginger spice and see if they press me on it you know I'll just wear my normal clothes um I don't okay, have the well, energy I for stand a costume. corrected that experience wasn't universal but I just thought I have a data point Ziva has a data point that must mean it's universal I think it's so. pretty universal <laughs> And even I have seen Spice World, so you know I'm familiar with okay. with the glory a film of the Spice that Girls. honestly holds up in a lot it's of a great. Movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. It's a. I was shocked revisiting that movie as an adult and being like, I'm impressed. This yeah. is amazing. They're taking the piss out of themselves. <laughs> like it's actually like so cheeky and like so like it's yeah it's 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 a very um. It's actually a very smart movie. <laughs> no, it is. And it's totally a nod to A Hard Day's Night. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then now all we have are just like very earnest documentaries oh, about no. like Harry Styles and Taylor Swift. And it's like, all right, guys, we're like, like you sing songs, by calm them. down. Like, okay. <laughs> Bring back the Give Spice World Give us another approach. Spice World. <laughs> I wish, yeah, I, I wish that I had more to bring to the, the Spice Girls discussion, but I did love, I did love everything you wrote about, about Mel B and, and her position as being kind of, um, set against like her bandmates as like the sole black woman who was sort of like representing in a, in a very white space. And the way that you write sort of throughout the book about the context of being a black woman in pop culture and like who, you know, each person is kind of placed among on a, on a show perhaps, or in a movie or who they are discussed in juxtaposition with in the press and I think that led to so many fruitful parts of your analysis. And I'm curious, like, was that something that you knew was going to be part of the book early on? Like, the way that so many of these women are contextualized, like, against each other and and against their other contemporaries? Um, you know, you're talking about rivalries and women being pitted against each other um, and and genuine uh dislikes that they have for each other and also someone like mel b who is sort of placed apart like did that seem clear to you that it was an essential part of talking about black women and culture oh yeah definitely because i think that you know there was recently a debate an online debate about whether or not it's okay to wear a bonnet outside you know black women some black women wear bonnets over their hair um, at night to, like, keep it fresh. But also, like, you might want to just, you know, pop over to the bodega and you don't feel like taking off your bonnet and you leave it on and you go get your whatever and you come back. But there was this huge debate about how it's, like, it's unacceptable, it, ladies, like, this is unprofessional. And it, 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 I guess I bring that up because I just feel like just the very existence of black women is so picked apart and 
um, debated and um, criticized in ways that are like so specific to to that experience. And so like, you know, someone like Lizzo or someone like Cardi B or someone even like, you know, I write about Countess Vaughn and how, you know, she was the star. <laughs> she was she was a supporting actress, but she was essentially the star of Moesha. And 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 the tension there between her and Randy and um, you know, how fat phobia came into you know, how she was positioned in contrast to, to Brandy. Like, they, I just feel like, yeah, that had to be a part of the conversation because I think that that is such a reality, especially today in, in the social media age of, of being a Black woman in pop culture where sometimes you are not allowed to exist in all your complexity, right? Like, Lizzo is not allowed to be you know a fat woman who is like proud of her curves and you know is gonna like twerk on the gram and like all these things but also like be someone who like struggles with internalized fat phobia because she lives in a fat phobic society and like you can have all the confidence in the world and still have days when you look at yourself and like want your body to conform just to make life easier you know and I think the fact that a person can be both things, can hold both experiences, is such an important part of conversation, cultural conversations about Black women that often are like not included in those conversations. It's always one or the other. Either Lizzo is a fat, a fat positive icon, or she is a traitor to fat woman everywhere because she went on a juice cleanse you know it's um yeah it's it's important to allow people to be allow black women to just be whatever they want to be you know yeah right rather than... unless they're candace um... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's a line yeah yeah well, we'll we'll leave her out of this yeah. this particular narrative there's uh, yeah there's something about like the the way that that pairs of women are used to draw these dichotomies of like acceptable, unacceptable. And the bonnet is such an interesting one to me because it just makes me think of the layers that stand between a person um, and whether they're acceptable to be seen in public and how Mm -hmm. many there are for black women compared to like a white man and like all the ways that you can, be considered more acceptable as your least put together self. Um, if you're a really beautiful, skinny white woman, you can roll out in sweats and your bun that you slept in. Um, and if you're, you know, a black woman, then there's a whole discourse around whether your hair has been styled. And the, there are just so many layers of work that have to be put in to be allowed to run to the grocery store um, that are part of like how society like controls people's existence and it's really depressing and exhausting i would imagine like navigating so many more of those layers and having to do like it is fundamentally draining to have to think about all of these things every day when you move about the world and i think so often and you sort of illustrate this, like so often that labor is rendered invisible and black women specifically are put in a position where like you can't win. Like if you're Lizzo, you can't win. You need to be authentic, uh, but you also need to be a body positive avatar and you need to love your fatness, but also you need to exist in a world that tells you that you are going to inevitably be told you're disgusting, hypersexualized, like all of these things. And that's just a fundamentally exhausting reality to live in. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's it's and the thing of it too is that you also have to realize that this becomes it's exhausting, but it's exhausting. At least for me, I can't obviously I can't speak for everyone. But it it's exhausting on such a deep like spiritual level mm-hmm. that you don't even realize you're exhausted 
totally like you're like 30 something you're like oh my goodness my whole life because you just you know like we live in a society and you just kind of like you do the thing right you have to exist in it you have to exist you know as women right like if it's late at night, we know that we're not going to be walking down a dark street at because we know what it is to be a woman walking alone at night. Like, things like that where you don't even think about it. You just kind of, like, you move accordingly. And so, you know, I, I grew up with, a, with a, a mother, you know, God bless her, who, like, would tell me, like, if you, you know, you can't leave home without earrings on. You just can't leave home without earrings on because if you don't have earrings on, like, you, you're, you're just, like, not put together and like that's bad and and when I was and I'm like whatever lady but like I now understand in a way that I don't even think know if she understands where that comes from and it comes from a deep place of fear mm-hmm. and and you know because at the end of the day you know I, I write a little bit about my body image and my self-esteem and all those things and for such a long time and I, I kind of came to the realization as I was writing the book I was always like why am I because I've always just felt like so ugly like to the point where like there were these days where I could not even leave the house because I was like I don't want anyone to see me and I was just like why am I so preoccupied with this thing because it's actually not I don't care right but but I'm so like I obsess over it. And and as I was writing the book, it became clear to me, like, oh, my goodness. Like, because desirability is such a huge part of how women especially gain safety and access and respect in this world. And so to not be desirable, to not be respectable, you know, feels precarious it feels dangerous you know yeah yeah it has it has consequences that are it has real consequences right yeah so but but never being able to like to verbalize that for myself is a, a direct result of white supremacy because the thing about white supremacy is like it's gonna make the world fucking crazy but then it's also going to make everyone act like it's normal like it's normal for people to be enslaved like this is normal you know right like if people i mean like if you read the minutes from like meetings from like the founding fathers or like you know after uh andrew jackson becomes president during the reconstruction era and like there are real politicians going into these hallowed halls and arguing for slavery with like such like serious like it's not like they don't sound crazy like they're being like really like dead ass like no like this is a very important institution and and it was normal right and i think that um and that's why i'm so interested in cultural criticism that does explore race because maybe it's because i am you know a racialized person and i i i've experienced what i've experienced but like i can't not think about race when i watch anything like i was recently watching mad men re-watching mad men i was like oh my god this show is about race in america i was like oh you know like it's like it because there's so many layers to it i think i forgot what i was gonna say but i think that whatever i had to say got in there somewhere so (laughs) You said a lot that was very, very meaningful. I I mean, it's true. It's like, how can you have so much culture produced by a society that is pretending all these in like horrible, bizarre, unnatural things are normal and natural and, and fine? How can you consume the culture created by that society and and not try to pick apart how that's coming through. Like, are we doing criticism and analysis or are we just like swallowing that shit down and being like, (laughs) great, I'm going to continue like living in this garbage world. Like you have to engage with American culture on that basis because the American culture is so profoundly like poisoned by that. And I think that's inescapable. And American culture is black culture too. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's well, that's like, part of it, right? Is that so much of it is black culture, but that is often not acknowledged either. And no one wants to talk about it. And it's like that, that like unwillingness to talk about it is, um, that's what bubbles up through the cracks. That's where you see like the fuckery, <laughs> you know, because of something's mm-hmm. not being said. And then you got, you have Zazie Beats playing stage coach Mary. Okay. Like, why is that? because there's a reason why that's happening you know um and i feel like that is why this type of criticism even what y'all do with with um talking about the bachelor like it would be so easy to just watch the bachelor and be like you know like and and it is fun like you can the thing people that's another thing people act like you can't critique and still love something or you can't critique and like still have fun with something like it's still fun but also, let's talk about what happened when we had the first black bachelorette. Like, let's talk about her experience, right. you know? Because this is such an American sh- Like, this is an institution. So how can you not want to unpack those things? And the show is kind of, like, really messy and corny for not handling that better. Because it could have been really cool if they had. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. And they, you know, they're still working on it years later. <laughs> Yeah, only a mere 20 years after its inception. Yeah. Still still trying. So one of the big kind of overarching themes of your book is freedom, as I think you've touched on in, in various ways throughout this conversation, and specifically like the feeling of freedom for Black girls. And in your essay on girlhood, you directly ask the the big question, like, how do Black girls find freedom? And obviously, I assume that that question has no neat and easy answers. But in writing this book, do you feel closer to an answer? I honestly don't feel like any of us are really free because so many people are being oppressed. Um, You know, look at what's happening in Texas. Like, it's just like, there are so many intersections of just like, fuckery that yeah, so there's no, like, true liberation. And I think that, that alone cre- creates this tension because it's, yeah. like, how do you find freedom in, in, a, in a society that is inherently unfree, right? That tells you that it's free, but it's really not. And so for me, I think that, and I think I, think I wrote this, like, it's about catching tiny freedoms. Like, for me, you know, as someone who deals with, with depression or anxiety, a lot of the time I'm like on an, I'm spiraling, right? Like I'm not like good, but I do have my moments of, you know, like you, you have like these brief moments of like, this is nice. Like I'm talking to y'all, like, this is great, you know, or like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hanging out with me and my boyfriend go see a movie and the movie's really good. Like being able to be present in those moments and like really be present and really like look around and be like this is happening has been so important for me because I think sometimes when you live in an unfree society, life can become very rote and you can like everything just sort of blends into everything else. So like the good and the bad just becomes like this one big like blob of like God like capitalism sucks like life sucks you know and yeah and so like trying to hone in on those moments when I can feel joy are the moments when I feel most free and so I guess part of the answer to that question is not allowing and this is hard right because I was gonna say not allowing your circumstances to steal your joy but the reality of the matter is like I am I'm very privileged in many ways you know so it's, it's in many ways it's easy for me to say like oh don't let the bastards get you down don't let you know there's some people who live are living lives where it's impossible to see a way out of whatever it is that they're going through or experiencing but at the same time I just feel that and again I'll speak for me personally I like my book I'm holding my book here <laughs> It's coming out soon. I'm so excited about it, but I'm also not, (laughs) you know, I'm also dreading it. I'm also like not proud of myself. I'm also like, 
who do you think you are writing a fucking book? Like, you're an idiot. Like, all those kinds of things, you know? And, um, sorry. That, that is the part, the unfree part of me, right? And what I'm trying to do is constantly get back to little Z, the little girl who, like, you know, drew a scribble on a piece of paper and was like, well, look at this, and was really excited about it and didn't care if it was good or bad, you know? Um, being able to connect with that part of myself that can experience things from a place of wonder and curiosity and just not from a place of, uh, yeah, not being able to see yourself. Because I think that's where a lot of feeling trapped, feeling feeling unfree comes from, is when you, you can't see yourself. I think that what every Black girl can do and should do is really take time and effort to refamiliar refamiliarize yourself with who you were before the world did what the world does you know sorry for crying no No. sorry now i'm crying this is a safe space for crying (laughs) yeah Um, yeah we're pro crying on on this podcast and i think that what you're saying is so profound and so beautiful and i think there is like being able to find those moments of joy when the world, the culture actively works against you in having them, like is in some way like a radical act. And I think also you're allowed, I just want to affirm that you're allowed to feel complicatedly about the things that you accomplish. And because it is, and I can only speak for myself in my experience of, of writing a book that was much smaller and much less, you know, personal and extractive endeavor but like there was something oppressive about feeling like people expected me to perform excitement and gratitude and pride in that thing and yet like no one thing is going to to fix the messaging that we've been fed our whole lives no one thing is is going to to do that for us and like it's gonna be work forever and I think that publishing something like this can be both like a really exciting thing and also a really painful experience and so I just want to like affirm for you that you're allowed to have have both in this moment yeah it's I can only imagine I am so afraid to write a book because of that feeling that you have after you finish something that you wanted to be proud of and instead you hate it. But sometimes I look back two years later and I'm like, that was actually pretty good. And (laughs) I hope that you're able to come to love your book um, and feel pride about it again one day. Um, This is a very difficult time. The cool thing is like, it's out of your hands now and it's in the hands of readers. And that's why you did it. Exactly. And that is the one thing that, like, it's like, once it's out, it's out. I can't take it back. So it is what it is. (laughs) You can't. You're not out in the world. And, like, yeah, you didn't, you know, I think so often, like, especially in our little insular writing media bullshit community, it's like, we lose sight of the fact that we're not writing these things for our cred in the writer world, among other writers, ultimately. Right. Like, yeah. Like, the actual value comes when someone, and I know you're going to get messages from people, saying what the thing you wrote means to them. And, like, that's, I think that's, like, the real joy in putting something out. It's been a gift to us to be able to read your work. Yes, it always is. I just love you. (laughs) I love you, too. Oh, my God, you're going to make me cry again. (laughs) You're being weepy. It's really, really fucking cool to see your friends accomplish it. It really is, and... I'm excited for you. <laughs> it's really incredible. Like we're so we're so thrilled for you and we're thrilled for everyone who gets to read it and the way that you talk about like finding like connecting with that ability to feel wonder and joy um I think this book gives some of that and it also made me think of your mood boards, which I know have such a following on Instagram and the way that, that they give that. And I think that, the, you know, that part of that is like it, it, there's so much pressure to be able to overcome the pain of this world and like be happy anyway. But 
there's also something about being generous with each other and and finding more ways to like create joy for each other and to accommodate the full selves of other people around us and I think this book was a, a really beautiful reminder of that and and a beautiful reading experience and we're so excited for everyone to get to read it and Ziva thank you so so much for discussing it with us and sharing this time with us it's been really wonderful thank you I'm like we're definitely gonna like get drinks or something soon I miss you guys um we miss you too for allowing me to talk about oh my neuroses and my (laughs) my fears and insecurities because I feel like it's such an important part of it's the part that no one really gets to talk about, you know? So, yeah. It's just fun. Uh, well, thank you again. And I hope everyone listening goes and orders Ziva's book, Carefree Black Girls. Order it from an independent bookseller. <laughs> and please read this book. It's beautiful and personal and just, like, also really fun. And we could all use some more fun and that's it for this episode of rich text we'll catch you next time